I'm going to start with this passage. And then I'm going to pray and ask you guys to pray with me. And then we'll start the message. This is 1 Corinthians 6. Our passage today is verse 9 through 11. These are the very words of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Lord God, your word is living and active, more powerful than a double-edged sword, piercing as far as the bone and marrow, able to divide between soul and spirit. Lord, your word is able to get right into the heart of men and women, of children, of everyone in this room. Your word is able to get right into our hearts and do miraculous work convicting us Opening our eyes where we're blind. Rebuking us where we're being fools. Giving us hope when we feel hopeless. Giving us strength when all we feel is our weakness. Lord, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is through your word by which we are equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name, we pray with one voice as one local church family and you, anoint your word this morning to do a miraculous work by the power of your Holy Spirit to do all the good things we needed to do today. We pray this boldly, not in our name, not in our worth, not because we deserve it, but we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is most worthy of you answering this prayer for us. We put our hope in him. Amen. Amen. The stock market crash of the 1920s, about 100 years ago, about 90 years ago or so, led to devastating, soul-crushing poverty. It was called the Great Depression. To this day, I think I'm kind of a hoarder. <laughs> I go into goodwill and, like, bargain. Because my dad was a Great Depression-era baby. There's probably other reasons, too, in my DNA itself, but... 
But I still bear the effects of something that my dad had seared on his heart. And this great depression was built on empty promises believed by deceived people. The great depression was built on empty promises believed by deceived people. And the intoxicating promise at the top of it all was this. We can all be rich forever without having to do any work. We can all be rich forever without having to do any work. And it allowed folks, the context of that promise being believed by so many people, created a culture, a financial culture, in which people with no money could borrow a great deal of money without any real good credit and invest it in companies that were not really worth the price of the investment. And they could keep doing it over and over and over and over again. Here's how it worked. Say a stock company costs a stock in a company. You know, a stock is an interest. It's like a piece of a company. And you buy, you give that company your money, and they work hard to make their company better, and they give you back someday a return on your money more than you paid for it. So say a stock in a company costs $100 to get a piece of that company, Ford Motor Company. And you go to a bank to prove that you have $10. Because that stock costs $100, but you don't have $100. We got $10, and the bank is like, everybody's buying stocks. We're fine. We'll give you $90. You give us, a, you give us $10 back on top of this 90 So you buy that $100 stock, and a month later, the stock goes up to $1,000 because everybody's buying stock. Everybody wants some, so it gets worth more and more. And then a month later, I get to sell my stock that I bought for 100 for 1000 I get $900, right? I take the money that I borrowed from the bank and I pay it back. They're $90 with a $10 investment. And I'm left with $900. And this is great. It's how the housing bubble worked. This is great. And as long as everyone keeps buying stocks. But when certain folks start considering the actual strength and the health of the companies that were being invested in, people stopped buying. And when people stopped buying, others saw, well, you're not buying, so I shouldn't buy. I mean, it was just, there was... They, they were buying for stupid reasons and they stopped buying for equally stupid reasons. Other people were just not buying. And the stock started to decline in value. Now I can't sell my stock back to the bank. I'm, I'm sorry, now I can't sell my stock to anybody. And I can't pay the bank back because they gave me 90 bucks and I had nothing in my savings to pay back for it. So the bank calls my loan. They want their $90 back. I made no money in my stock. I lost it all. Now I got nothing to pay the bank with. Now the bank can't pay its bills. It has to shut the doors. It has to foreclose or close all the loans that are out there that can't be paid back. All these companies lose their money. No one's buying their stock anymore. They have to fire this huge, this huge cavalcade of workers and buildings they all bought thinking they were just going to get richer and richer. And the whole thing starts to shut down. No more jobs, no more homes, no more food. For a lot of people, it looked like that. In the Great Depression, industrial production was cut in half. Crop prices lost 60% of their value. And unemployment increased 600-fold. It went from, you know, three-point-something to a quarter, 25% of all people. Economist John Galbraith has this to say about the case of the Great Depression. He says, it was this nature of mass illusion Prices were going up, people bought. That forced prices up further, that brought in more people, and eventually the process becomes self-perpetuating. Every increase brings in more people convinced, convinced of their God-given right to get rich. There's nothing unique about this. It's something which happens every 20 or 30 years, he said, because that is the length of the financial memory. It's about the length of time it requires 
for a new set of suckers. If you will, a new set of people, he said, capable of wonderful self delusion. To come in and imagine that they have a new and wonderful fix on the future. The length of time it requires for a new set of suckers capable of wonderful self delusion. And it was nationwide. We just went through it a few years ago with the housing market. The Corinthian church was in the crosshairs of being a new set of suckers. They were in the crosshairs of a wonderful self-delusion. And Paul was adamant they escape it. We touched on this at the back of our passage last week on lawsuits. But I wanted to slow down a bit this week and really marinate in the sobriety of this three verses. Because so much is at stake for our church in this passage. What we're really up against. What's really possible. Why we're called to watch out for each other. Why we're called to be a community. And not just people who are isolated from each other and stop in every once in a while to hear some music and hear some guy talk about God. And really, what is at stake for all of our neighbors, so many of our loved ones and our family for all eternity? So much at stake for all of us, really. That's not too much to say that in the three, these, these three verses is the weight of eternity, the weight of heaven and hell. The weight of God's glory being at stake, as we'll see. In this passage, we see portrayed a lethal deception that we have to reject. We see a lethal deception that we have to reject. And we see an eternal hope we have to embrace. So let's start with the lethal deception that we must reject. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually moral, nor the idolater, the adulterer, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This passage, the whole thing, all three verses, as we said, they have enough information really to cover the whole Bible. But this passage only has one command in it. One specific command that we get explicitly. Do not be deceived. Don't be fooled. The unrighteous period, will not inherit the kingdom of God, period. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. People who live without God in this world and live unrighteously are not going to inherit God's kingdom. Don't be fooled. It's not simply a question for the Corinthians to look at only what they know from Paul and his teaching. But the hard question here is, how are you living? What's your life look like? Does your faith in Christ, does your trust in God, has it, does it have its grip on your heart and my heart in such a way that it is really fighting through to show in how I live? Because if it's not then like the Corinthians who had a lot of knowledge, they could boast in a lot of truth that they believed to know, a lot of wisdom they believed to know. If I'm claiming Christ with my lips, but the pattern of my life is that I'm really denying him with my life and the way I live, then I'm deceived. I am being fooled with the worst lie possible. I'm believing 
the worst lie possible. And one day, if I keep living as a fool, I will wake up to a crash and a poverty and a pain infinitely more soul-crushing than the Great Depression. It won't go away. It won't end. So Paul cries out, do not be deceived. You cannot live like this and think you're going to escape the judgment of God. You're not. The problem for the Corinthians, just like us in our culture, is that they lived in a world filled with this deception, filled around them with everyone outside of their church saying, we're going to be fine. This deception is so cunning and seductive, it turned the universe upside down from the very first pages of creation. In the Garden of Eden, we see God had revealed himself in his goodness. He had revealed himself in his holiness. He'd given everything to his creatures, his image bearers. He gave them one law to show their loyalty to him. Do not eat of this tree. If you do, you will die. If you do, you will die. We all know the famous story, right? It it wasn't simply that Eve made a poor choice in the garden. She was deceived. Just like everyone in our world who comes into this world, we are born deceived. And sadly, soberly, awfully, many people remain deceived. And they hear the same lie that Eve heard. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. There will be no judgment for you. You'll be fine. You will inherit the kingdom of God. God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. You won't have to face judgment. You can live how you wish. This will all end well for you. Be your own God. Determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. This was the deception. No judgment will come. You can be your own God. You can decide what is right and wrong. You will face no consequence as it was for Eve. So it was for the Corinthians and so it is the same for us. All around them was the song of deception that the world was all singing. We can ignore the fact that there is a God. We can dismiss his claims over our lives. We can ignore his revelation of himself. We can make up our own rules for right and wrong and live as we see fit. And Paul here is saying, no, you can't. You can't. I can't. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will inherit the judgment of God. His just and eternal condemnation. And if you live like this, Paul is saying, if this is the unrepentant pattern of your life, you can call yourself a Christian all you want, but you're deceived. And Paul gives a list of particular aspects of unrighteousness that this church in particular, it's not the exhaustive list, but that this church in particular was flirting with, was in deadly danger of being infected by. And so Paul repeats some things he said before. So to honor the word of God, although we've talked about these things, we're going to repeat them briefly as well. Idolaters, sexually moral, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, people who tear down others with their words, swindlers. So we can ask ourselves through this list briefly, 
How might we be allowing our bodies or our eyes or our hearts to think with sexual desire on images, actual men and women that are not our spouse? If we're not married, are we fighting to stay pure in body and heart? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You have to fight. God calls you to a fight. And we'll talk about that fight in a few minutes. What it looks like. What it doesn't look like. But he calls you to a fight. What about idolatry? This is a hard one for us. Because we're not used to people on the sidewalks. Bowing down to little images. Like they do in many nations. Though that's becoming more and more popular. But really at the core. Idolatry is about what's your deepest. What's your deepest really functioning hope in Where's your hope set on something besides the Lord? Maybe it's good things. Your satisfaction, your ultimate joy, your hope is set for, for better or for worse on your kids, your spouse, a sports team. I mean, that is a real thing. Your team loses and you are crushed. I have been there. It sounds so silly and ridicule you above, but it's, it's, it's a real serious thing to God. When I watch the Buffalo Bills lose in the Super Bowl four years in a row, and I get depressed about it. I think it was the first year they lost. My dad says I walked out the door. He didn't see me for hours. That's funny, but it's sad. And it reveals a hope that's really misplaced, and it's foolish. And if I just continued unabated to fill my life with that kind of stuff, God would say, you can't live like that. But that's an easy one to ridicule, right? What if it's your career? What if you're just driven by your status in your company, your money that you want to make, your dream home? What defines your deepest joy if God took those things away? What inflames your greatest fears and anxieties? Is it if this thing lets you down on this earth, you feel like you couldn't go on? That tells you something. In that place, your greatest desires, your greatest fears, in that place, you will find a functional God competing for the throne of your heart. And right, we, we, we have to fight that all the time, don't we? What about your tongue? Paul uses that word revilers again. I think it's the, at least the second or third time he's used it. He's talked about it in other places. Do you even subtly allow yourself to indulge in dishonoring and negative speech about others behind their back? Do you receive that kind of talk from others and let it take root? Proverbs says that gossip goes down like a tasty morsel into a person's inmost being. You don't even have to talk. You can just listen and, and just feel your flesh start to enjoy that. Enjoy somebody's misfortune and how they're being reported about to you. Whole newspapers and cable news channels are built every day on pumping this stuff into our hearts. Just negativity about people. Their lives going down in flames. How many stories do you hear about teachers wearing Teachers winning teacher of the month or teacher of the year in their school district or 
the countless firefighters who get awards for saving lives and versus how many people you hear about just celebrities doing awful things, marriages being destroyed, people cheating on each other, politicians being speculated about this way or that way. It sells because it goes down into our heart and we just take to it. With our hearts, we're destroying each other mentally and emotionally. We can do that with each other in our families, in our churches. I was talking to somebody the other day, remembering that old saying, loose lips sink ships. Loose lips sink friendships. Loose lips sink churches and families. And listen, it doesn't matter if it's someone on social media that you're reading about or someone who's a coworker in the next room. A person you write about or talk about or drink in about doesn't stop being a person made in God's image because they're five degrees separated from you. <laughs> Play the pe- Kevin Bacon game. Remember that? Five degrees. If you don't remember that, just forget it. <laughs> but the point is, you know, I, I don't have to know how horrible Whitney Houston lived. I don't have to know what Prince's doctor might have been doing or what this Italian president did with this woman who wasn't his wife. I don't have to enjoy that, take that in, and get all worked up about it. It's not just that I don't have to do it. God would say, what are you doing? What are you enjoying with your heart? Don't be deceived. You can't live like this. You can't live like this unrepentantly and not fight this, not turn away from this. We can look at things like, you know, adultery and homosexuality. But when it comes to the sins of the tongue about people in our hearts, it comes much closer to home for me, maybe to you too. Of course, we do need to qualify this. Again, as James says in his word, we all stumble in many ways. As John tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? God understands that we're going to struggle in this life. One writer says, these terms stand for individuals whose lives are characterized by the sin in question. It's not any person who commits one of these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is thinking of a persistent rebellion against God, not the temporary backsliding or lapse of the believer. Paul is not talking about isolated, accidental incidents of righteous, unrighteousness, but about a whole way of life pursued persistently by those who indicate they would be aliens by their lives in the kingdom of light. Yet, with our qualification, we don't want to take the volume out of the bark that Paul is trying to warn us with, right? We don't want to pull the teeth out of something that's supposed to be good for us when it bites down on us. Paul is calling us to wholehearted discipleship. Horatio Bona writes, Beware of half-hearted discipleship, of compromise with evil, of conformity to the world, of trying to serve two masters. Do you know what Jesus said about trying to serve two masters? He said you can't. Beware of trying to walk in two ways, the narrow and the broad at once. It will not do. Half-hearted Christianity Christianity will only dishonor God while it makes you miserable.
The reason why this is so important is that the word of God gives every indication that the world, and even many who claim to be in the church among God's people, will be in a state of deception. And they will be in a state of deception all the way up to that day when God decides finally and fully who's in his kingdom and who's not in his kingdom personally through Jesus Christ judging the world in his glory. Listen to what Jesus says about his coming. He says, as the days of Noah were, so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Jesus' point here is not to say eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage is bad. He's to say people were paying no attention to this message that Noah was given. Noah was saying, you're all going to die. You all need to repent. Get on this boat, maybe. I don't know exactly what Noah was saying, but he was warning the world and nobody was paying attention. Jesus is saying they did not care. They were blind. And he goes on to say, they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. It would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household? He's really speaking here in particular to those of us in leadership. But everyone in this room has some stewardship of their lives, of their talents, of their children, of their ministries. And Jesus says, who is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour which he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Similarly, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 about the the way people's hearts will go As the Lord tarries, as God's judgment waits with patience for people to repent, Paul describes this. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, who will turn away their ears from the truth. And will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul is saying people will stop listening to the truth. That says take up your cross daily. 
die to yourself and follow me. They'll say, we can be our own gods. There's no judgment coming. Yes, they'll give in to sexual immorality and invent new categories of insanity for how to live out their desires which have become warped. Yes, they'll give themselves into materialism and greed and create a new gospel called the health and wealth gospel, which means if I'm suffering on earth, there's something wrong because God promises me riches and health. That's not the gospel. So, secondly, the hope to be reclaimed. The hope to be reclaimed. Because at this point in this message, you you should be asking what I need to ask as I deep into these kinds of questions about my conduct and the fruit of my life. Maybe this question is on your heart and your mind too. What about the gospel? What about grace? Is this a is this a is this performance based discipleship? Is this me earning my way to heaven? What happened to the gospel? It's the right question to ask. And Paul knows it. Let me ask you something, a little step aside illustration. Do you know what would happen if the moon was brought closer to the earth, closer than God made it to be? If the moon got bigger and bigger and bigger, so to speak, to us, from our perspective. Depending on how close, it would begin to lead to massive changes in our world. The closer it got, the worse the waters would get. The tidal waves would grow more and more severe. Tsunamis. The earth would heat up because of the gravitational pull. We'd start to see volcanic activity becoming chaotic and cataclysmic. We'd see earthquakes destroying the surface of the earth. If the moon got close enough, our earth would be destroyed. Life as we know it would end. The point is, the solar system is set up just right so that things are supposed to stay in their proper balance. And it's just like that with our passage today. God wants his truths to be in their proper balance. And if they get out of their proper balance, like, I can live how I want, I'm saved. The gospel is a license for me to be protected and have fire insurance and go about my business. Things start to fall apart in the universe of your life. But just as likely, if the gospel of grace becomes obscured, If the moon of your performance becomes bigger than the sun of the gospel, things start to fall apart drastically as well. You become hopeless or proud. If we take what we've seen in verses 9 to 10, perseverate on those things only, and if we minimize what comes next, we'll massively disrupt the gravitational balance of our spiritual lives. And so Paul quickly after he reminds them to be sober, to be alert, to watch out, to not be deceived. He brings in this final verse that's so crucial because he's trying to make sure the solar system of their faith doesn't lose its proper gravitational equilibrium and get destroyed. To help them not throw out the baby with the bathwater, to make sure they don't misunderstand what he is saying. He sends them, he sends them, he sends them not to morality. And not to ethics for their hope. Not to their performance for their hope. He sends them to Jesus. 
Watch this. Watch what he does. I mean, the more I thought about this, it's been in front of my eyes for years. The more I thought about this, the more it just blew me away and filled my heart with hope. For after telling him, do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not live this way. He could go straight to, so live this way. Do these things. Don't do these things. But he doesn't do that. He bounces off that wall right into the arms of Jesus. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And and listen to those words, those verbs. You were washed implies by someone else. It's middle or passive voice. You were sanctified by somebody else. You were justified by somebody else. In whose name, in whose power? Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You were these things, but somebody else acted upon you. Somebody else settled their power and their grace and their mercy on you. He made his gospel message grab your heart. It did wash you. It cleans you of these sins as controlling passions in your life. Do you remember that? He sanctified you. He, literally, the Greek word, he holied you. He set you apart to be holy. He made you new. He justified you. He did it. He took all of your sins and he placed them on Christ. And then he declared you forgiven and righteous on that basis. Now Jesus is your righteousness. He put his Holy Spirit in you. I don't know what you remember. If You know, many of us don't remember when we were saved. It was a slow simmering thing that we just realized. But for me, I, God gave me something that was dramatic. And I remember that day that I was born again, I believe it. The last thing I was thinking that day was I got to put my hope in myself to get myself out of this mess. That was what I'd been believing for 20 years that left me hopeless all the time. No, 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 no. Paul, in no uncertain terms, he is laying the contrasting destiny of these folks. Not in either, not in either. Listen, watch out. He's, he's creating a contrast, and it's not this contrast. It's not A, a life of sin, or B, a life of you living righteously. Don't miss this. It's A, a life dominated by sin, or B, a life rescued by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. Those are the menu options for Paul. A life dominated by sin or a life rescued by Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the power of God. As we said last week in a different way, Paul is calling them firstly not to reform their ways, but to remember who they are. And this is not some sentimental self-help therapy Paul's talking about here. This isn't feel-goody thinking. Oh, you can do better than that. I mean, I love the public school systems, but, but my kids go there and they learn about how great they are and how awesome they are every day, you know? It's not what the Bible teaches my kids unless they're in Christ. They don't need sentimental self-esteem therapy. So that's not what Paul is doing here. Listen, there's something much greater at stake here than how good they might feel about themselves. 
God's glory is at stake. God's glory is at stake. If their hope is rooted in them pulling themselves up by their bootstraps out of their gutters of sin, then where does the glory go? It goes to them. Do you see that? Do you guys see that? But if their hope is actually in the sufficiency and the faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and if their changed lives issue from that hope being held on to and believed and fought for, then God gets the glory. It's one or the other. It's my goodness and my character or it's credit to God's grace and mercy for making me forgiven and making me new. So this passage calls us not only to remember we are not who we used to be, but it tells us that crucial to living out a life different than we used to is to remember that we're not who we used to be. He's not just reminding you He's empowering you through reminding to be different. Another way of saying this is that God works through his gospel truths continuing to be held on to by his people. Continuing day after day to be cherished by his people. Continually day after day to be hoped in by faith. His Holy Spirit works through you trusting in his promises. That's how he gives power to you through his Holy Spirit. It's always the way it's been. He speaks, you believe it, and through your faith, he transfers power from his Holy Spirit into your life. So yes, he wants us to turn from these things, but not turn from these things to moralism, but to Jesus as our rescuer. In verses 9 through 10 that we started with, the deception to be rejected. Paul's rebuking them at first for claiming Jesus as Savior, but rejecting him as Lord. That's what they're doing in verses 9 through 10. We can live this way and call ourselves Christians. See, they're claiming him as Savior, but they're rejecting him as Lord. But in this last verse, in verse 11, he wants to protect them from the equally disastrous opposite lie. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord but forgetting him as Savior. See, growing up means we learn how to pick up one thing and then pick up something else without dropping the other thing. Right? I used to say, maybe I've said this before, that growing up as a Christian is being able to carry two bags at once. God, Jesus, he is my Lord. He is my King. But he's also my savior. And I'm, I, what I do, my, I want to, oh, he's my savior. I stop remembering he's my Lord. Oh, he's my Lord. I got to obey him. I got to follow. He's not my savior anymore. I got to do this all by myself. No, God says, Albert, grow up. Keep both of these things together. Yes, Jesus is to be Lord of our life. He commands and calls us to take up a cross daily. But yes, he's to be savior of your life. Not just when I'm justified and saved on that day. But every moment of my life, he wants to be my savior. His mercy and his grace continue to be there to forgive and cleanse. His grace continues to be sufficiently believed in through my weaknesses. To be sufficient, if I will believe it, to get me through my weaknesses. 
His faithfulness continues to say, if you will trust me, I will be good to my word and provide a way out of this temptation. So just some final application questions as we go. Do we know, do you know where to go when you struggle with your identity? I mean, you've got to know where to fight. I know many of you and I myself, we can struggle with, are we really saved? How do I know? So I just want to ask you, do you know where to go? Do you know in your word where to find God's truth that you're supposed to live on, more important, at least as important as physical food, to say, God, I am this in you, and here's how I know. Do you know how to say to your soul what Paul is trying to say to them? You were justified. You were washed. If you don't know, that's a problem. And if you don't know, tell me. I'm a pastor here for that reason. (laughs) At least to be able to talk to you about where you can go to grab his truth. So you can say to your soul, I am these things because of Jesus. So do you know where to go? Second question. If you do know where to go, do you believe God about that? Do you believe that he will be true to his word to to save you or to keep you saved? Do you believe he's able to fulfill his promises to you? And then just lastly, do you know enough of his promises to rely on him to do what he says? Do you, Really, the, the application for this is not just do not be deceived. It's, it's do you know the truth well enough to use it? Do you know the truth of God such that it's actually functioning in your life to give you hope? To give you a sword to do battle with? That's where you need to find your hope, in his truth, in his words. That's why Paul is saying these things. We live on his promises Not just to get saved, but every day to stay faithful to him. We live by his promises so that he gets glory. As his power works in us because we're just depending on him. We're just depending on him. We need to close today. But listen, if you you need any help with these things we've talked about today, don't be deceived. Get help. Come and talk to me. If you've got a care group leader, talk to any of the guys on the leadership team. Talk to any mature saint in this room that you know. Don't be deceived and know God's promises and truths well enough to live on them. That you can have an actual functional relationship with Jesus where you're resting on him. You're fighting every day to trust in him. You're not trying to earn it. Where you can see in your life and say, without perfection... I can see how I'm living such a way that he is my Lord, but he's also my Savior. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Marshall to pray for us, and then we'll sing one more song. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the extreme mercy that you've had on us. We thank you that 
you bought us out of slavery. We thank you that you washed us with your blood. We thank you that you, Holy Spirit, have come to live in us. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to die for us so that we might have life in you. Lord, we are so grateful for you and your work in our lives, Lord. We pray that you teach us, teach us how to go to you, not to run towards moralism, not to look at uh, our own selves for hope, but to look to you, Jesus. Fix our eyes on you, Jesus. You are our hope. You're our first love. We love you very much. Amen.